Mac Power Users, Episode 320, MPU Live for May 7th, 2016. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. Uh, welcome back to another live show, David. Hey, Katie. How are you doing today? I am okay. Ha- we, happy uh, Saturday. Happy Saturday, yes. In fact, we should mention that this is the last Mac Power Users Live on a Saturday. See what I did there? Yeah, I did. You, okay. That's called tension. It is a little tension. some tension in. Yeah. But it is the last MPU Live on a Saturday because Saturdays are really tough. Uh, they're, they're tough for me. They're in the middle of the day. I know they're tough for some of our, our listeners to, to join in with. But, um, but MPU Live will continue. So we are going to continue with MPU Live. But instead, there's going to be a schedule change. So starting in June, uh, MPU Live is going to switch over to Mondays. So we're going to record MPU Live on the first Monday of the month at 6 p.m. Eastern. That's going to be 3 p.m. Pacific. And I believe that is 10 p.m. UTC, which is like the one true universal time zone. Yeah. That's that's if my little time zone app is correct. Yeah. Exactly. And that first one is going to be on June 6th, by the way, Monday, June 6th. So mark your calendar. Yes, it is. So uh, if you're on the, on the West Coast, you can listen to it at work. You, know? you definitely should listen to it at work. Yeah, put it in your ear. Just tell the boss you're listening to something important about work. Right. And even if you can't join us in the chat room, you know, there is a, a relay app that you can download for free from the app store. We should put a link to that in the show notes uh, where you can, um, it will notify you and and listen. So you can listen in live. Yeah. Sorry about that. Somebody in the chat room saying we're now we're doing it uh, at midnight in Germany. Sorry about well, that. It's it's like midnight with, day, um, you know, Mac power users after dark. Yeah. Which, well, you know, yeah, that's true. It could be kind of fun, right? It could be. So, um, well, we have got, uh, unfortunately, no guests today, but that is because we are just jam-packed with so much amazing feedback. Uh, I don't think we could just squeeze one in. So instead, our guests are going to be all of you, because believe it or not, you all have a lot to say about things like backup, things like menu bar apps, um, things about securing down and uh, locking down your Mac, uh, and all kinds of cool Mac power user-y things. So... Um, I think we should just go ahead and dive right in. Yeah, a really good job, listeners. I mean, this month we got some great feedback. It was, it was a lot of fun reading it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we will start with an audio comment from Josh. So here's Josh. Hey, Katie and David. This is Josh from North Carolina. I had a quick question for you guys. I use my phone as a hotspot, and every now and then I'll have people get on it because they'll need to use uh, some of my data. But um, after the fact... I don't know of a way where I can remove people from the ability to use my hotspot with the exception of just changing the password. Um, Is there a way to just kick people off or will I have to change it every time I want somebody off my hotspot? I look forward to hearing what the Mac Powers users community has to say about this. Thanks, guys. So what Josh is talking about is if your cell plan supports it, which I think most do now, you can use either your iPhone or your iPad, assuming it's LTE enabled as a wireless hotspot, and that's going to reduce from your data pool, obviously. Uh, But it's a nice feature to have, and I've really enjoyed having it on my iPhone, especially when traveling. Uh, But other people like to to latch on. Here's the thing. um, I I don't know of any way that once you've given someone the password uh, to access your, your hotspot that 
that you can kick them off without changing the password. So I would say be very careful about who you give that password to. And probably this is a a good idea not to make the password to your iPhone's wireless hotspot one of your regular passwords that you use. I mean, not that you should have any regular passwords, of course. That's something that we preach that you should not have a regular password. But... In fact, if you look in the wireless hotspot settings, Apple is going to kind of give you a, a gibberish password. And I'd, I'd recommend that you, you keep it something kind of gibberishy. Um, maybe this is a good one that you can use, like, uh, are they called dice words, where you pick a couple of random words and string them together so that they're easy to remember and type in, but hard to guess? Yeah, I, I think, Josh, the only thing you can do is just change it. And I, I've done it before. I, I was on an airplane once where I was stuck on the runway for like two hours. And the, and I was using mine and the guy next to me said, Hey, would you mind sharing? You know, cause he didn't have any access. And I, I said, okay. I mean, he wasn't watching movies or anything, but then as soon as we took off, I, I switched my password. So I, I sadly, there's no simple way to uh, make a temporary password on that. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, you can go into the, uh, the hotspot settings on your phone or your iPad, if it's got a cellular connection and the password is, I believe in the first field over, it's not that difficult to change. Um, Katie, did, did you get a, um, a cellular radio on your iPad? You didn't, you just got a iPhone. I, I did not know. And that's because I've got the cellular radio in my iPhone and yeah. because I feel like I can use that hotspot. Now, if you don't get the cellular radio in your iPad, you do lose some things like, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to find your iPad if, if you're not, if it's not unlocked and connect to a Wi-Fi hotspot. So yeah. that, that could be a problem. It's, so um, you do, you do lose some things by not having that wireless radio. But it's it depends on how often you use it. And for me, it just came down to a, a cost benefit. You know, it's an extra cost to get the cellular enabled Wi-Fi or the cellular enabled iPad in general. And then for me, I don't remember if it was extra 10 or 20 bucks a month to add it onto my data plan. Yeah. For us uh, with AT&T, it's $10 for the device per month. So it, it does add up. Yeah. Okay. Um, Wayne wrote in about the unsubscribe button and we talked about email a bit last month and he says, what are your thoughts on clicking the unsubscribe link on junk mail or mail in general that you don't want to receive? And he says, well, he hasn't heard us talk about this topic. Um, I actually have a couple thoughts on that. First is, uh, the unsubscribe button is a great idea if it's from a reliable vendor. And, uh, like the example I always use is lands in because somehow I got on their list years ago and they really like to send me email. Uh, it's a company that I think is reputable and reliable. And uh, when I hit the unsubscribe button, it should work for a company like that. Uh, when you get junk mail from somebody you've never heard of before and you hit the unsubscribe button, I have a private theory that the that all that does is confirm the, for them that they're actually getting through to a human and then they just turn up the dial on it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's a private theory. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and one way that you can check, um, I, I think if it's a, a vendor that you think is somewhat reputable, if it's like a marketer, a catalog or a company that you have done business with um, or a reputable, and I use that kind of in quotes, but a, a true association, or if it's like an, an email that is sent through a reputable, again, kind of using that in quotes, um, email provider, like I think Constant Contact or uh, MailChimp. I mean, they all have fairly legitimate unsubscribe buttons at the bottom of their emails. But you want to make sure that you're not getting duped by clicking a bogus unsubscribe button. And keep in mind that in almost every mail application, and certainly in Apple's mail app, if you hover over a link, you can tell where that un that link is going. So I'm always very careful that I hover over an unsubscribe link. And if it's taking me to some gibberish place, uh, 
I'm not clicking it. And instead, um, I, I subscribe to SaneBox. I know you do as well, David. Uh, that email is going into my Sane black hole. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great way to to handle the problem if you're a Sane, SaneBox subscriber. The um and and the other thing about that hover over trick, it's not as reliable as it used to be because they they spoof that stuff too. Some of the more sophisticated folks. So. Um, I guess my point is if it's an, if it's an email from a company like you've done business with, go ahead and unsubscribe. Otherwise just delete it. Try and pretend that you never saw it. Yeah. The other thing that you need to be careful of, and we're talking about the way that companies track you online is that they can track you through the HTML content and messages, you know, and it's, it's uh, getting HTML formatted messages is nice because they're pretty and we can see pictures and things like that, but it also can be dangerous because they can, the way that they can track you is whether or not you viewed an image in an email. They can tell whether that email has been opened. And sometimes you don't even know because they can put like a little one by one white box uh, in an email. And if that's loaded, they'll know, oh, yep, this has been opened, which means we've got a good good email account. Yeah. So one of the things that I do in Apple Mail in the preferences is if you go into Apple Mail preferences, uh, and I believe is it in the view preferences? Um, you can click one of the boxes uh, that tells it not to load remote. You can uncheck the box that says load remote content and messages. Now, this is I I wish they tweak this setting a little bit because right now it's an all or nothing. I wish you could say load remote content from trusted sources and then thereafter it would from from an email from that particular sender. Uh, but what this does is it will now, when you when you see a message that has remote content, i.e. it's not just a plain text message or it's it's content that is is being loaded from someone else's servers, uh, you'll see a little box at the at the top of that message that says this message contains remote content, and you can click to load it. So the emails you receive aren't going to be nearly as pretty, uh, yeah. But it's going to keep you a little safer. Yeah, and and honestly, just you shouldn't be. Um... You just have to be careful, I guess. I, and we keep going back to it. I, I feel really bad that uh, there's so many criminals out there taking advantage of email and people. And and it seems like every week goes by that I get another scammy email that's written from another angle just to try and get you to click on that attached file. They want you to do that so badly. So be careful out there. Yeah. Um, so the next topic, I, I must admit, I'm I'm a little hesitant to bring up because I I feel like it's finally died down, and I I don't I, I, I don't want to create a problem again. But we have had uh, a lot of our listeners uh, write in and ask us about uh, Text Expander and what's going on there. Are we still using it? Um, what are will we cover on a future show? Alternatives to Text Expander, um, you know, are are we just shills for text expander and all of those things? And <laughs> well, some of them have been a little more direct than that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, some of them, you know, and I will say by and large, the great majority of the emails we've received from Mac power users, listeners have, have been uh, polite and just with legitimate concerns. Um, yeah, so a, cu- a couple have not been so nice, but I guess we better say with full disclosure that smile is a sponsor of Mac power users. In fact, smile is sponsoring this episode uh, with their products, PDF pen. Yeah, well, and so and so, Smile came out with a new version of Text Expander that is um, cloud-based um, storage, and then they have a a uh, version for uh, Windows, and you know they're looking to kind of make it kind of a cross-platform. And with that came a subscription model, 
a lot of people don't like subscription models. Uh, they the original pricing was lowered, so they tried to make it more affordable. But you know, a lot of people just don't want to do a subscription, and I get that. Look, I I don't you know use whatever app works for you. That's always been my feeling. I mean, we're going to talk about the stuff that we like, and um, I don't want anybody feeling like they have to get Text Expander. There's no requirement get what works for you but the um uh so we did want to cover you know what are some of the alternatives because people are saying look like smile but i just don't want to pay subscription what are the other options so we looked into it and um thankfully macworld really kind of solved the problem for us they wrote a really nice article called you know um alternatives to text expander for you know for people who don't want to pay subscription there's one called a text that we've heard from a lot of people um, are using type inator is another one dash three, um, type it for me seems to be a popular one. Um, the, um, you know, and what I really like what some people are doing is they're, they're converting keyboard maestro kind of into a text expander solution. And Dr. Drang has really led the charge on this. So, so we're going to put some links in the show notes, um, to the article at Macworld and some of Dr. Drang's scripts, so if that's your interest, you can take a look at it. Um, uh, what else we got to say on this, Katie? Well, I will just say for for what it's worth, I, I am still using Text Expander. I honestly believe, and they're not paying me to say this, that it is the best in class solution for me. And especially since uh, they, they have come out with some revisions to their pricing model, which uh, I, I'm very pleased to see. Um, they are now offering existing customers a a twenty dollar or excuse me a lifetime discount, which which makes the product about twenty dollars a month uh, in the U.S. Twenty dollars a year. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. Yes, that's a very that's a very nice distinction. Uh, twenty dollars a year in the U.S., um, which I think is about right. And uh, I know it's people don't like software as a service. I I personally hate subscriptions. I I get it, but. Um, I also get that developers need to be able to make a living. And um, I'm very, very particular about the th- services that I subscribe to. Um, but I, th- I think Text Expander is going to make the cut. You know, Sanebox is one that I didn't think, honestly, that I would subscribe to. And and it's one that has ended up make, making the cut. So uh, I, I think 20 bucks a year, especially for uh, existing customers, is a good one. And keep in mind that Text Expander 5, which continues to sync via Dropbox or, or iCloud, is going to uh, keep around. So... Uh, I think there are options now. I'm going to continue to to use it. Um, I've switched to the cloud model because I'm very interested in the Windows support that is going because I do have to use a PC at work for primarily for drafting. And believe me, having Text Expander when you're drafting things like uh, wills and trusts is an amazing thing to have. But if that's not your thing, uh, Text Expander Five is is still an option. So yeah, and, and honestly, I haven't really checked out the alternatives because because Text Expander works so well for me. I like that it. You know, for me, the big deal is that it works on iOS and Mac and like all the fill in snippets I have, I have saved so much time with the application and I really don't want this to turn into a commercial. So I'm not going to go into that, but it's to me, it's worth it. And generally, I think that's why I got in so much trouble about talking about thinking it was worth it because they're a sponsor and people are like, well, you're just saying that that's not true. But the fact is I am one of those people that has no problem with paying subscription fees for software that makes my life easier. You know, text expander is a good example. Same box. I jumped on board that as soon as I saw it, which is another sponsor. So I guess you can call me a shill again. Uh, what's yeah. one of the, oh, uh, here's one that's not a sponsor that I spend $15 a month on is uh, dragon. And, you know, dragon has this um, dragon anywhere product on the, um, on the iPad. And it's just a great 
I, I dictate into my iOS devices every day and it's so much better than Siri. And people say, I was at a lawyer conference and I said, you know, this is a great deal for $15 a month. And some lawyer was telling me how that's ridiculous and he's not going to spend it. But then when you start asking the guy how much he charges per hour, it's like five minutes of billing a month for him to have something that can do his dictation twice as fast as anything else out there. So I, I don't understand, you know, the, the, the thought there, but anyway, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting rambling. So I guess I should stop. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to rehash this. We've, we talked about it a ton about it a month or so ago when it, when it first came out, but there are still issues. I think, uh, you know, smile is continuing to improve things and they've talked about that on their post, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing where this was going. This is going, I think having their own, Sync service. A lot of people question why they do that. I, I think it gives them options in the future, and so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. But before we get too far deep in this, I think we uh, we we probably better steer clear. So uh, yeah. of course, let's uh, let's take a pause here to thank our first sponsor, who is not Smile, by the way, uh, and then we'll we'll come back with some listener feedback. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by Drobo, a family of safe, expandable yet simple to use smart array. Drobos are designed to protect your important data forever. Visit www.drobo.com to learn more and get $100 off with the discount code MPU100. With all of our pictures being taken digitally and our home movies and all of our essential documents, the digital data on your hard drive is essential to your life. And we all know that there's only really two kinds of hard drives, the one that is going to fail and the one that has already failed. Drobo's job is to keep that data safe. With the Drobo storage device, you can put hard drives inside of it, and it will automatically look at those drives and add them to your Drobo storage. Drobo then stores the data on those drives using some really smart technology to make sure that if one of those drives ever fails, you don't lose your data. It doesn't require that you have matched drives or anything fancy. You can just stick drives in there and start storing your data. You also don't need to be an IT pro to keep track of it. There's a little indicator next to each drive. And if it's green, you're good. If it's yellow or red, you need to fix something. If you can understand a traffic light, you can use a Drobo. I've got a Drobo attached directly to my iMac. And because it's an SSD iMac, I don't have a ton of storage. So it's really great having the directly connected Drobo. It allows me to do my time machine backups to the Drobo. I put my iTunes library and all of the videos that I've ripped over the years I've got on the Drobo. So everything is accessible to me, but I don't have to use up all my valuable SSD storage. I've been using this attached Drobo like this for years and it's operated like a champ. One time we had a power surge here and it blew out the first drive in the Drobo. I'm pretty sure Katie's never going to let me forget that, but it was scary because one of the drives was basically toast. The Drobo, however, survived just fine. So I got a new drive. I replaced the one that, that failed and the Drobo blinked for about a day as it was reassembling the data. And when it was done, I still had all of my data and it was still in two places again. So I had no data loss thanks to the Drobo storage. Whether you're storing a big photo library or doing video production or you just have a lot of data and you want to safely protect it, a Drobo is a great solution for you. Drobo has many devices that can cover whatever needs you have, whether you want to put it on the network or carry it with your laptop or attach it to your iMac like I do. To learn more, head over to drobostore.com and use the discount code MPU100 to get $100 off. Thanks, Drobo, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. 
All right, David, we got a lot of listener feedback uh, with some of our previous shows. Yeah, yeah. Hank wrote in about Drobo and encrypted backups. And he said when he created a Drobo share for his time uh, machine backup, um, a link to an important notice appeared in the ad share window. It said important Drobo do not support encryption via time machine. Serious damage to a Ray may result. Well, that's a little scary. Yeah, I, I missed this. I knew this and I do this and I completely missed this in our backup show. So my bad. Um, yeah, Drobo does not support encrypted time machine backups. So take note. Yes. <laughs> um, and I'm going to I'm going to butcher this name a little bit. But um, Sachelle wrote in and wanted to share his backup horror story, which thankfully has a happy ending. But to provide this uh, warning to all of you so that you don't run up in the same situation. And he says, I'm writing to share my backup experience and to provide a warning, even when using storage devices that have a RAID configuration. And I won't give you the details, but he gives us a thorough uh, outline of his backup plan, which in a nutshell includes time machine backups uh, to a, a Drobo, along with a very large set of video files that he also has stored on his Drobo, along with, thankfully, um, some offsite backups, some clone backups and some other things. And he says now for his horror story with a happy ending. A few weeks ago, he was notified that his time machine backup on the Drobo stopped. When he investigated, he found that his Drobo could no longer mount the, onto the Mac, and there was an issue with the volume structure on the Drobo. Despite multiple attempts to repair, he was unable to. Eventually, I was forced to reset the Drobo and lost my time machine backup and the videos that I had stored on the Drobo. I had been under the false impression that RAID 5 configurations would be the ultimate backup solution. I'm still not sure what happened, but thank goodness for 321, which, David, as you mentioned, was your backup strategy. I was able to restart Time Machine backup to the Drobo and reclaim my video, my videos from the clone drives that I have. Um, and I think this is good to mention that, you know, keep in mind whether you're using a Drobo or whether you're using a Synology or one of the other many RAID storage arrays that are back the back uh, that are available. Um, those are great because they can typically protect you from a single hard drive failure, which is common, uh, but they're still a single source of failure. Um, that box can fail. That box can be susceptible to corruption. That box can be uh, susceptible to a power surge or a problem. Um, and so I think, number one, it's important to have that data on your network attached storage drive or your RAID drives backed up um, and, and always have a plan B. And, and in this case, uh, Sachelle was able to recover that data because it was backed up. And we talked about in the backup show I have all the data on my Drobo backed up, not one, but two places. One is to a, a backup, just a plain backup USB drive. And then the other is that drive is also getting backed up to the cloud uh, via Backblaze. And yeah. so yeah. Um, TJ in the, in the chat room is saying that RAID is not a backup. Um, it's, just, it's just a really big hard drive that you are, you are putting things on. But uh, it's, it's a little less susceptible to individual drive failures, but it's not in itself a backup. Well, I, I guess what I would say is, uh, number one, absolutely, if you're going to have a, a Drobo or Synology or any type of, of device like that, you need to make a separate copy of the data on it. You should not say, okay, it's safe. Uh, the advantage is that for the day-to-day -day problems you have, like the failed drive problems, they're totally solid for that. I mean, it, it, you won't lose data when that happens. But I, I, I th believe, I think Katie does too. In fact, I think we talked about this on the backup show. Both of us have bought these like monster size 
um, hard drives that we keep in a closet or somewhere. And then once in a while we go and just copy all the stuff off the Drobo onto it. And I think that is a really smart uh, move. I mean, the, just the whole idea of that backup show is just have a bunch of copies of the stuff that's important to you. Don't, in, don't ever expect it to be safe if it's in one, one or two places. Exactly. Uh, and then Nelson chimes in and says that all backups should be encrypted and only you should know the key. He says, by the way, you can store it in an app like one password or LastPass, but data sent to the cloud should be encrypted by your machine first before it is transmitted. And he said, this cannot be emphasized enough. Companies get hacked and there's nothing to say that a major data breach won't occur at your chosen online backup service. Hopefully this will never be the case, but if your data is encrypted first, then all the thief gets is, is gibberish. Uh, many services will offer to encrypt what you send them, but then they have the key. And this too could be stolen or used by a rogue employee, you know, or like we said, is susceptible to subpoena or something like that. And many backup services will allow you to encrypt your data using your own key. Um, and Backblaze does this. Uh, we mentioned that CrashPlan does this. And Travis and others wrote in and informed us that, yes, of course, and we should have known this, ARC does support encryption as well. Um, it doesn't matter which storage provider that you go with since all of the encryption occurs locally before your files are uploaded. So it's good to know that the big three that we talked about on our show all do support the ability to have your own um, encrypted files with your own backup key before you send it up there. Yeah. It, um, but yeah. typically you have to choose this option. It's it's not necessarily turned on by default. Yeah. And please do. For so long, the issue with online backup was just the logistics of it and the, the slow speeds and the data caps and all the problems. It seems like those problems are getting solved. And now we're getting to the second tier here. It's like, okay, if we're going to give this person all our data. What are we going to do to protect it? And if this is something that really concerns you, uh, you don't need to use online backup. I think that was one of the the points we should have made better in that show is, you know, the offsite, while it's very convenient to have an online backup and there's some, some definite benefits to it, that's not the only solution for an offsite backup. Uh, Ralph had an interesting scenario and he said, especially if you're someone who travels a lot, you want to think about on the go restores. Some time ago, my MacBook Pro failed while I was on the road. With a motherboard replacement, I had basically a clean sheet. All of my apps and user files were gone. Long story short, I was able to get my MacBook Pro up and running with all of my apps and user files while I was on the road using only cloud storage, Dropbox, OneDrive, and iCloud without using any of my clone backups at home. The settings for many of my power user apps like Hazel did require a bit of additional work once I got home, but my MacBook Pro was 90 plus percent restored using only cloud backups. He said, I mentioned this as a challenge to David's contention that cloud storage like Drobo is not a backup. Actually, he said Dropbox, not Drobo. I'm sorry. Uh, cloud storage like Dropbox is not a backup. Yeah, I, that's great. And I, 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 I think it is very possible to restore on the go. Uh, just as a side note, Hazel version 4.0 is out now and, and syncing your rules is a new feature. So getting yes. Hazel fixed <laughs> on the road will be easier for you, Ralph. But the, um, but I, I, I understand what you're saying, but to me, that's not just having the stuff in Dropbox is not good enough because uh, if something goes wrong at Dropbox, if you share something and other people delete it, it's just, please don't think of that as your only backup. Well, but, you know, he does have a good point. Absolutely. Don't think of it as your only backup, but it can yeah. supplement backups. I mean, you and I have talked about how easy it is now to get a Mac back up and running with cloud storage. Yeah. 
Um, and I think this is also something that we should bring up for people that if you're someone who travels a lot, I mean, there are many people who are, you know, on the road, you know, a couple of weeks out of the month. What do you do? So you need to factor that into your backup as well. Is it uh, an encrypted portable hard drive that you keep in your travel bag? Um, it's something to think about. Yeah, we have, um, we did a show. It's like, I think it was one of our first 10 shows. It was about synch- synchronizing data. and this was, I don't know how long ago it was now. Okay. Was it 2009? Maybe I don't know. But the, um, uh, the, the whole point of that show was how do, what tools do we use to keep the data synced? So when you open your laptop versus your Mac, you still have this access to the same data and we're, we're getting ready to revisit that. We're going to go back to cloud sync. But the interesting thing to me, I've been kind of fiddling with the outline on that show lately is it no longer is this at all about, you know, is it possible to sync data? Now it's a question of what are the best solutions and what are the best workflows to do it the easiest? Because it's no question anymore that you can have your data everywhere. It's just almost taken for granted, which is a really nice improvement in the last few years. Right. Uh, Several people wrote in to tell us that unfortunately crash plan no longer supports the option where they will ship you a hard drive. Um, We talked about Backblaze still does, but it used to be possible that if you found yourself in a position with offsite storage where you lost your entire computer or your hard drive, one of the downsides of the, using these cloud storage providers is while they're great for downloading an individual file or a couple of files, if you got into a position where you had to restore your whole computer, that could take a while depending on the size of your your data the size of your data set and the speed of your connection because you could be in a position where you have to download terabytes and terabytes of data. Uh, and it used to be an option uh, that CrashPlan would would ship you a hard drive because um, sometimes FedEx, you know, two night or one night would actually be a faster data transmission rate than your your broadband pipe. Um, but turns out CrashPlan no longer does this. Uh, Backblaze still does. So one more thing to possibly take into consideration. Yeah. the And then Dean wrote in with a, he had a CrashPlan issue that I was not aware of. And it's actually kind of concerning. Um he had a crash plan um, on one device and upgraded his account to cover both his Mac and his MacBook Pro. In doing this, he discovered crash plan won't back up iCloud Drive because of the way the information is stored locally. And he gave us a link to a support article. We're going to go ahead and put that in the show notes. But if you're a big investor in iCloud and you're storing a lot of data on iCloud, crash plan is probably not the best solution for you. Um, another option that Wendy wrote in and wanted us to take a look at is GoodSync. Um, and she sent us along a link to a blog post that she had written uh, about her backup strategy and talks a little bit about GoodSync and how that incorporates it. Uh, but she recently switched from CrashPlan to Amazon's cloud service and uses GoodSync to encrypt and manage her backup. And that article includes screenshots of how she uses the two together. She says that GoodSync allows her to encrypt her files, schedule and prioritize uploads, um, and sync and back up. And she is still seeding the initial upload, but so far she's been very happy with it. So some live feedback well, in the in the chat uh, window. We've got one of our listeners, Beckrell, saying, no, he, he backs up iCloud data to CrashPlan all the time. So... I don't know. We'll have to get to the bottom of that. So there's at least a question over that. Well, and I think the way that this may be happening, although we do have the link to the um, crash plan article, is Becquerel is saying that there's actually a folder in your user library that that has your um, your crash your your iCloud data in it, 
And I think the answer is that it may depend. I think it kind of depends on how you're, you're, how you're storing your iCloud data. If it's using iCloud Drive, which is the kind of the newer implementation of iCloud storage, or if it's using kind of the older implementation. But Beckerl says he's going to send us some information on it. And if we get that in time, uh, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Well, you know, there was a lot of really good feedback on the backup show in general. And um, we heard from a lot of listeners talking about how, um, you know, they they rethought their process after the show, which is good because I always love getting those stories. We inevitably, when we talk about backup on the show, hear from somebody within, the, you know, six months that's saved photos or a Ph.D. thesis or something because they implemented a backup. And and please, if you uh, if you're listening to this show and you didn't listen to the backup show, go back and listen to that one, because I, I bet there'll be something in there you can use. Yeah, we also had um, someone from Western Digital write us and say, you know, you really didn't look at the emerging category of personal cloud products that are coming up. And um, apparently there's this, and, and you're right, I haven't, and it's something that I probably need to do. But apparently there's this emerging line of of hard drives that are now connected to some cloud storage, and you can use those to back up with Time Machine and other things. So it's kind of a way to have kind of a, a mini network attached storage, but with kind of the easy use of a hard drive. So if you're looking for a way to back up multiple computers or multiple people in your household, but don't necessarily want to set up a full-blown NAS. And I think I'm going to try to check some of these out. And if that goes well, I will report back. Um, but I'll I'll let you know as I, as I dig into these a bit more. You know, the, it's just kind of a, a bigger theme with this whole cloud-based uh, technologies. Um, for years, the only company that could reliably do kind of big data in the cloud and synchronization and all that was Google. I mean, that was what they built their whole company on. And then it seems like there's like a second tier of companies like Amazon and now Apple who are starting to get actually pretty good at it. So, you know, for a long time, this was only a technology you could bring to bear if you had a gazillion dollars and, you know, hundreds of engineers and the stuff you were building. Um, then just a few years ago, for me, the first chink in the armor was the Omni Group. The Omni Group is putting synchronization into, you know, OmniSync. Basically, they put into all their apps. And their idea was, look, we don't want there to be a problem if you buy one of our apps. We don't want to say it's Apple's fault or Amazon's fault. We want to be, we want to own it. So we're going to own the sync engine. So a company the size of Omni, which is, I think it's maybe 20 or 30 engineers. I don't think it's a big company. And they were able to put it together. And now you see a company the size like Smile that, um, love it or hate it, they're doing synchronization of your text expander snippets, and they're a very small company. So it seems to me like the technology is migrating down uh, to the point that companies like hard drive manufacturers and, you know, small software developers can start realistically building their own synchronization engines. And to a certain extent, that's Wild West, and some of them are going to do it well, and some of them are going to do it poorly, and it's scary because it's your data. But the good news is um, the technology is becoming accessible enough that a lot of people can experiment with it and make it. And as users, we're going to have a lot of options about how we do this. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of exciting uh, seeing, you know, the democratization of these high end sync technologies. I think what's exciting is, you know, David, we've, we're obviously 320 shows in and we've been doing this for a few years now. But if you look back and think about some of the things that we were talking about at the very beginning when we were, were doing Mac Power users and some of the problems that have been solved 
and that are just non-issues now in, in just the few years since we've been doing the show. Um, you know, assuming we're still doing the show, uh, you know, that many years from now, it, I think it's it, it's going to we're, we're obviously more issues are going to be created. But a, a lot of these, I think, are just going to be solved problems soon. I hope so, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's going to it's going to get to the point where a software developer is going to have a stack that they just use. That's the, the sync stack, just like now they have one that's the print stack, you know, and um, that's exciting. So we've got a lot more to talk about, uh, particularly um, you had a lot to say about security and a lot of good ideas as well. So uh, we'll be back talking about that right after this. This episode of Mac Power Users is also brought to you by Automatic. So chances are your car hasn't really kept up with technology, and it's hard to do because every year a different model's coming out, it has new features, and we don't typically upgrade our cars like we do our iOS devices. Well, that's where Automatic comes in. It's a small adapter that turns any car into a connected car. You just plug Automatic into the same port that your mechanic uses to diagnose engine problems, and boom, it opens up a world of possibilities. Automatic lets you keep track of things like your fuel mileage, your vehicle help, You can even tag your trips so you can easily keep track of business expenses with just a tap on your phone or even your Apple Watch. And if you're driving down the road and you see that pesky little check engine light turn on and you wonder, what does this really mean? Is it something serious? Is it something I can go a few more miles on? Automatic will tell you before you go to the shop so you don't have to worry about whether you're getting ripped off. Automatic can also integrate with your connected home devices. For example, I've got mindset to connect with my Nest thermostat. So it knows when I'm home, it knows when I leave. So you can set your Nest up to fire on shortly before you get home so you know that your house is all toasty and warm before you get home. And have you ever worried about losing your car in a parking lot? Well, Automatic can help you take care of those things too. One of my favorite things about Automatic is it can be a little bit of a coach to help you improve your driving skills. So, for example, I must admit I have a little bit of a lead foot. Well, Automatic will let you know when you're accelerating too quickly or braking too quickly because those kinds of things can affect your gas mileage. And I've noticed that since I've installed my Automatic, I've become more aware of those things. And it's a little gentle reminder that helps you improve your driving habit. Automatic works with nearly every car made after 1996. It takes just minutes to install, and it connects to your iPhone or Android device over Bluetooth. You'll get real-time performance data, intelligent coaching to help you maximize your fuel economy, the ability to access all of these connected services, including if this, then that, the ability to check your engine light and diagnose problems, and it even supports the Apple Watch and the Pebble. Best all, there are no monthly fees or subscriptions required. You buy the automatic once and you're done. You can even take it with you when you go to a new car. So normally automatic is $99.95. But if you use our special offer code MACPOWER or the link in the show notes, you'll save 20%. So head on over to automatic.com slash MACPOWER for more information and use our special offer code MACPOWER to save 20% off the normal purchase price. I've been very happy with mine. I think you'll like it too. Thank you to Automatic for your kind support of Mac Power users. So we had a show called Lockdown, and um, we got a lot of feedback from people. Marcus uh, sent in an, an audio comment that I thought was worth sharing. Hello, Katie and David. It's Marcus sending you another voice memo. I listened to your security podcast and had another idea from Steve Gibson's Security Now podcast. He suggested that if you use IoT devices, so Internet of Things devices like Nest or your Hue lights or Bluetooth locks or anything like this, to make sure that they're on a separate SSID within your home. This way, when someone 
hacks into your network through your IoT device, they're not also then getting access to the connected computers and connected devices. They are isolated into their own network. Thought it was a great idea and wanted to pass it along. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, so I have a couple of thoughts on this. And, and we actually had someone else write in and, and say, you know, I'm getting a lot of, of, of these home automation and Internet of Things devices that are starting to bog down my home network. Can I put them on a separate network? Is that a good idea? Because if you think about it, um, it, we have a lot of stuff connecting to our home network now, especially if you've got some of these light bulbs. Every individual light bulb is another device that's connecting to your network. And if you've got a half dozen light bulbs or so, that's you're, you're getting a lot of stuff that's starting to connect to your network. And some of these companies are not doing as good of a job as they should uh, with security. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a question of whether or not that's a good thing or not. So whether you're doing it to kind of segregate your network for management or whether you're doing it from a security standpoint, um, it, it might be a, a thought to put some of these Internet of Things devices on a separate network. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts of this. Um, just creating a separate SSID may not necessarily be what you want because that may not necessarily segregate them on your network. Um, so you want, you, I think you want to make sure that you're actually segregating them a little bit on your network, whether that's creating a true guest network that is segregated from them. Um, you're going to have to think about logistically how you're going to manage that, but yet still have access to all of your stuff. Uh, some routers will give you the ability to create a guest network um, that is that is segregated, but that may not necessarily help you from a traffic management standpoint if that's what you're trying to do. Um, otherwise, you may want to get a separate router. Uh, with a different SSID and then otherwise segregate that from your network. But you also want to be careful because if you set this up incorrectly, you can start causing problems with your with your network. Um, because you, if you want these things to be able to talk to your network as a whole, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, uh, but you want to make sure that you don't have multiple devices in your house that are handing out uh, IP addresses if you want everything to be able to speak to each other because uh, you're, you're going to have some some conflict there. So just I think you need to sit down and map out what exactly that you're you're trying to do here. Um, but yeah, it could be a good idea. It could. It sounds to me like a lot of work. Um, and at this point, I don't know how much. I'm sure there's some risk to this Internet of Things in your house. And you're right. I think it's early days. They haven't really addressed the security question that well. Uh, but when I think about like the Hue lights, um, so they're on the same Wi-Fi network as my devices. And that's one of the reasons why they're so responsive and work so well. I think if you put them on a different network, I'm not entirely convinced you're going to get the same convenience out of them. Uh, how, how deep have you gone in with the Hue lights by now, by the way? I know you, you kind of got back into it. You I have the three? three, three or four. I think I might have four. Oh man, I've gone nuts. I've just gone crazy. I put oh, one in. But all of mine are white. I don't have any of the fancy multicolored ones. Yeah, I have some of the multicolored ones, but I, I bought a lot of the white ones. I, I even put one like on the porch, you know, because now I can turn the lights on on the porch when I'm driving home or whatever. It's it's nice. The um, I I, You know what I, I would like, and they don't have them yet, but I hope that they would, because I have the, the indoor floods, which are the, the bigger lights. I want those in just white, which they don't have yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, they'll get there. If they don't, a competitor will. I mean, this is, there's definitely competition in this space. Like one of the nice things I do now is I have a, um, I have, because we have the um, Amazon Echo. Um, oh, it's so great with the Hue lights. Yeah. I just say, um, you know, 
when I, sometimes I'm an old man, I guess I go to bed and my kids aren't home yet. And I, I, I don't think you can say it because I think it's kind of like the Ahoy telephone thing. Yeah. I'm not going to, but I, I, okay. I say the magic word to my Amazon echo. And then afterwards I say, um, you know, uh, nighttime lights on or something. And I, it's nighttime on. And what it does is the, um, it sets the porch light on, it sets the stairwell light and it sets the kitchen light on, you know? So when the kids come home, if I've already gone to bed, lights are on for them. Yeah. So it's nice. Right. I love that. Um, I've got it set up with if this, then that, so that the, I have a, a light in my, and a lamp by my bedside that it comes on kind of at, at dusk or a little bit later, kind of about when the time I might be thinking of going to bed. So when I walk into my room at night, that, that light is already on and it's enough light that I can, you know, get ready to go to bed and do those things. And I'll have to turn the main overhead lights on because I don't have hue bulbs in those. And so I can go ahead and, and get in bed and get all ready for bed. And then I can just lay down and then turn around and say, you know, hello, little internet device, uh, turn off the bedroom light. Yeah. Or the, um, yeah, I, little things like that are really nice. The, um, and it's just going to get better. Right. Um, Robin wrote in getting off this internet of things thing. Uh, Robin wrote in with a really good idea that I didn't think about, uh, to use the restrictions on your iOS device to prevent disabling, find my iPhone. She said, in addition to all of the lockdown measures that you talked about, there are two things that, two things that prevents a thief from disabling iCloud and find my iPhone. Uh, if he happens to snatch your phone while it's still unlocked. So this would be like, if you happen to not have a lock on your phone, which shame on you, you should. Or if someone like grabs it out of your hand or shortly after you've used it, which is possible. He said, for this, you have to enable restrictions, which is basically parental controls, and disallow changing location services and accounts. And you can do this in settings, general restrictions, location services, don't allow changes, and settings, general restrictions, accounts, don't allow changes. She said, now keep in mind that this may present some problems for apps that request to use GPS, because as you add new apps and you have to go change these settings, you then do have to go in and disable this and allow access and then enable it back in. Otherwise, you're going to have some weird errors. Uh, but, I, you know, this could also be good for like kids' phones if you don't want them disabling um, Mrs. Weasley's clock feature. Yeah. Find my friends. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that. So that that's great. Uh, so it's both in the settings, uh, general restrictions. Mark wrote in about ransomware. He says, do you know ransomware? And it's, and uh, that's W H E R E. Yeah. This is a funny little tool that is monitoring your hard disk operations. If something is starting to encrypt your stuff, it's stopped and a pop-up window is asking you if you like that. Uh, up to now it has warned me twice about operations I had initiated. So it seems to work. And uh, it's another power tool to protect your data. And uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes. I have not installed it. Um, but it sounds like a really good idea. Yeah. So if you didn't quite understand what it does, it's a it's a little utility that runs in the background of your Mac, and it will notice if your files all of a sudden are starting to encrypt themselves, and if so, it will pop up a warning and say, uh, "Are you sure you want this to happen?" Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Burned wrote in about two factor authentication with his iPhone. Hi, Katie. Hi, David. My name is Bernd. I'm a German living and working in Thailand since 20 years, and I'm a big fan of your show. 
I would like to warn people against using Find My iPhone or Find My Mac without using two-factor authentication. If someone knows, steals or guesses your iCloud password, FanFan can actually reset and lock all your devices. This happened to an elderly Dutch man I met recently here in Thailand. He was on vacation and suddenly his MacBook, iPad, iPhone and even his iPod got wiped and locked. Just imagine he was 6,000 miles from home and since his phone was wiped and locked, he could not even call anyone. It turned out it was the ex of his daughter which could even answer the security questions. But look at the harm it can cause by potentially breaking all your devices. In my opinion, Apple should not allow to set up Find My iPhone or Find My Mac without two-factor authentication enabled. Wish you guys all the best. Keep up the good work. Love you all. Thanks, Bernd. Ma'am, what a terrible story. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's a great thing that it, I love Find My iPhone. In fact, Serenity Caldwell just had a great story up on iMore about how Find My iPad helped her retrieve her um, uh, iPad Pro that she had accidentally left at a rest stop. And it, it's a great tool. I think everybody should use it. But it also has the opportunity to do some very bad things if it's in the wrong hands. So if somebody knows your iCloud password or can guess your iCloud password, they have the ability to wipe all of your devices that are associated with that iCloud password. So this this brings up a couple of things. I mean, one is you, you need to think about who knows your iCloud password. Uh, family, friends, um, exes. Uh, it, it sounds like that was particularly the the case here. Um, and that's probably one of the passwords that you, you need to change anytime that there's a, a life circumstances change or probably be changing pretty regularly. And yeah, two-factor authentication. You probably really need to have two-factor authentication on your iCloud account. I can't think of any reason not to have it on. Yeah. And I think that, you know, following up on Burn, Burn saying, hey, you know, Apple needs to, f- to be better about this. I think another thing Apple needs to do is find a way to bring two-factor authentication to the masses. Because right now, it's not easy to set up two-factor authentication on your devices. They don't, I don't, I'm not aware of receiving an email from Apple saying, just click this and we can get you going. It it seems like you've got to kind of dig for it. And, and I guess the reason is for most people, it's a pain and maybe a risk that they can lose their data. But boy, I just feel like in today's world, it should be more, it should be the default to have two-factor authentication turned on. Yeah. I mean, it's the default now to have, um, auto auto login turned off on your Mac. It's the default now to have a six digit passcode on your iOS devices. So I wonder if they could make that the default as you're, you're walking through um, setting up your iCloud account for the first time. Yeah. And I'm not eating my own dog food here. Cause I think about it. My wife's phone doesn't have two factor authentication turned on because I've sounds, never. Sounds but, like maybe that's something you should do after this podcast. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that's a burn. Thanks for sharing that. And everybody out there, be careful. Well, I'm saying that a lot today, aren't I? Uh, TJ, uh, who I think I'm just going to start sending him the show before we publish it. And yeah. he can um, drop in a little audio comment at the beginning of every show with the corrections. <laughs> Um, because he, he sent, tends to listen to the show immediately after it comes out. And then the next morning I have emails with, uh, with corrections, which I is, is not a criticism. I do not mind. I'm just giving him a hard time. Uh, he'll be on the show, I think next month, by the way. Uh, but, uh, reminded me, and I knew this, but again, 
somehow in my my haze the last couple of months have forgotten it. Um, but you no longer have to wipe a hard drive to encrypt it. You used to, uh, but but that changed a, a couple of uh, OS versions ago. So if you want to encrypt a hard drive, and the, all you have to do is right-click on it in the Finder uh, and then choose Encrypt from the contextual menu. And so uh, OS X has been able to do this for a while. It can do it on the fly on most hard drives. I think depending on how it's formatted, it may still need to reformat some, but for most hard drives, it will just encrypt it on the fly. Um, it doesn't necessarily do it instantaneously. So you want to do it when you have a little bit of time. And obviously, whenever you're doing any kind of reformatting or repartitioning, you want to make sure that you have a backup of that data. Yeah, or when you're just going to push the encrypt button, you know, yeah. why not? Make yeah, sure you have a backup I of that data. I, didn't, I must have not caught that because I didn't remember us saying that, but I'm sure we did. Did. I said you had to erase your hard drive. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, Metin, I think that's how he pronounces it says another approach to changing passwords. He says in a recent show, you talked about changing your passwords at least twice a year for some people with lots of passwords. This may be a long process. Another option is to change one to two passwords a week, like during the weekly review time. And that way it's less intimidating. He says, you know, it takes less than two minutes that way. And over the year you change at least 52 passwords. And if you use a password manager, like one password, you can also sort all your passwords and start with the oldest first and work your way towards the new one. That's all good stuff. Yeah, the security audit feature of uh, 1Password will let you do that now. Sort sort by all your passwords and see which ones you haven't changed in a while and if you have any that are duplicates. Yeah, I am. Um, and, and when I was talking about changing them a couple times a year, I don't change all of them a couple times a year. You know, I don't change the ones for some goofy, um, you know, newsletter I sign up for. But like, you know, the iCloud and the Dropbox and, the you know, the ones that are, you know, the big ones. Or the ones in the banks, those always get changed twice a year for me. And then uh, Marcelo wrote in. Uh, I think it's Marcelo. Well Marcelo, good, good go. catch there. Yeah. Uh, wrote in with some, uh, as well as others, with some recommendations for uh, two applications that do similar things called NearLock and Mac ID. And he says, for an extra layer of security in your work environment, consider NearLock or Mac ID. He says, I personally like NearLock more than Mac ID. But basically what these will do is they'll allow you to use Touch ID um, on your phone if you're, and it will link your phone to your Mac uh, to unlock your computer, which allows you to basically use a stronger password on, on your computer. Um, do you have any experience with either of these apps? Um, I haven't used that one for a while. I was using one called knock K N O K I'm sorry, K N O C K. And what it does is it uses the accelerometer and your Mac and it's got an app. And then, so when you're near your Mac with your phone in your pocket, you just knock on your phone. You just give it a knock and then it unlocks your, your Mac. It's kind of crazy. I was using it when does that work? Because, you know, I used to go get up and leave my desk. Now that I work from home, like an animal. Yeah, exactly. Now that I work from home most of the time, it's not as big of a deal. And I haven't used knock now in over a year, so I don't want to recommend it, but it's worth checking out. Um, but uh, I have not used near lock or Mac ID. How about you? I mean, have you thought about putting one of those on your, your Mac? Um, I haven't because I've just gotten so fast with inputting my passwords, but sounds like something I'm trying. Yeah, I just look up it. Knock is at nocturnlock.com. Uh, K-N-O-C-K, turnlock.com. Yeah, I've got links to all of them in the show notes. So Great. We'll be good. All right. Um, menu bar apps was a big show, and we've got uh, lots of great feedback and more suggestions. So get your pocketbooks out 
Um, but we'll talk about those right after this. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro. I'm so happy to tell you about the newest version of PDF Pen. It's version 8 and it just came out. They've added some great new features. One of my favorite features in PDF Pen is the ability to take a PDF file and turn it into a Microsoft Word document. I use it all the time because people send me PDFs that I want to edit and track changes on. Well, you always had to do that by sending it up to the internet and having the conversion done and then brought back down to PDF Pen. And if you were in a hotel that had spotty Wi-Fi or you just didn't have an internet connection, that feature wasn't available. Well, that's not true anymore. With the new version, PDF Pen 8, it does the word conversion locally right on your Mac, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. There's a bunch of other new features like file attachments. You can actually attach a file to a PDF and reference it in your comments. I'm already using this feature all the time. You can also now add audio annotations. So rather than writing down annotations on your PDF document, you can just speak into your Mac and audio record the annotation. You can then send the file to your recipients and they can listen to it there. They've also added the ability now to digitally sign documents with an AATL certificate and added a measurement tool that allows you to measure the distance between objects when laying out a PDF. If you're a PDF Pen Pro user, the new version also adds the ability to collect PDFs into portfolios, which is really nice. And the new version has a bunch of tools to make creating forms even easier and making your forms look even better. Also for PDF Pen Pro users, that feature earlier where I told you you can convert a PDF into a Microsoft Word document locally, well, for the Pro users, you can also do it with Excel. So if somebody sends you a table or an Excel spreadsheet as a PDF, you can turn it into an actual Excel file. It's great. Overall, this is a really nice upgrade with some very useful features. The conversion to Word for me is something I use almost daily, and I love that I can do it locally on my computer now. You can learn a lot more over at smilesoftware.com slash pdfpen. If you've purchased PDF Pen since January 1, you're going to get the upgrade for free. If you purchased it before, you'll get an upgrade for just $30. And you can also now upgrade from PDF Pen Standard to PDF Pen Pro for just $50. So head over to smilesoftware.com slash pdfpen and learn more about the latest version of PDF Pen. Thanks, Smile, for supporting the Mac Power users. Michael wrote in about uh, camouflage, and I guess we kind of blew it uh, with this because we heard from several people talking about um, some of these uh, camouflage type apps. He says, I think there should be a mention of camouflage. I know you like to use Hazel to get documents off your desktop. This program hides everything from the screen. It gives you a nice empty canvas to look at when you don't have programs up and running. Um, It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I. I kind of like, though, having the documents on the desktop. To me, desktop storage is a very temporary thing. And um, I guess if I hit it, I'd be afraid I would start collecting things. My wife, my wife collected so much on her desktop that they started stacking on top of each other. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah. And then you got in trouble, didn't you? Yeah, I've told the story in the show. She woke me up at like two in the morning out of sound sleep. I thought the house was burning down and it was just because I I cleaned up her desktop. You know, gotta be careful. We we have a great marriage. Uh, the two biggest threats to our marriage have been me trying to clean the desktop on our computer and uh, installing the first version of iTunes Family Sharing. So those were yeah. the, that was that was the points there where I thought I might be in trouble. Might need to you know to get a right. doghouse or something. So you're saying that you have screwed up everything that's gone wrong. 
with um, your technology and max sparkiness. I'm going to uh, plead the Fifth Amendment there right. on, on advice of counsel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Bob wrote in about Keyboard Maestro. And, you know, we actually had more to talk about in the Menu Bar app show. Uh, and Keyboard Maestro was on the list, but we we ran out of time. And so how dare we not mention Keyboard Maestro? But he said, one Menu Bar app that I did not hear you talk about was Keyboard Maestro. And while it's not strictly a Menu Bar app, it has a great feature that will let you take any macro and add it to the dropdown of the icon in the Menu Bar. And you can designate a macro to show in this list by adding the trigger the uh, status menu is sele- item is selected. You can have that macro only execute that way or also add a trigger as well. Um, but you may occasionally want to run certain macros on demand. And there's also a trigger macro by name macro that comes with a default install. Keyboard Maestro is one of the few items that has earned its way onto my default menu bar rather uh, than the bartender menu. Yeah, Keyboard Maestro is so awesome. I, uh, yeah. I, 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 we've given it entire shows in the past, but we may go back. I I'm using it for so much. I'm that. I'll tell you that I'm doing a lot of stuff on iOS these days. And one, there's a couple things I really miss when I'm on an iPad and, and one of them is keyboard maestro. Anyway. So Anthony and many, many others wrote in about amphetamine. Amphetamine? Am I, yes. I I'm saying that right? Yes. yes. Amphetamine. And I talked about caffeine and my love of caffeine, uh, which I love both in real life as well as in the menu bar of my Mac, which is a little utility that will keep your Mac from sleeping. But everybody wrote in to tell me about amphetamine is so much better than caffeine because I knew that caffeine hadn't been updated in a while. And I just figured that's because it really wasn't necessary. Um, but amphetamine is so much better. It's available in the Mac App Store. And it does everything that caffeine does, and it does even more because you can set custom amount of time. Uh, you can set it to be triggered by specific apps. You can set it to be triggered about, you know, by whether your Mac is plugged or unplugged um, and even more. And of course, it's free, which is, uh, which I mean, even if it wasn't, I would totally pay several dollars for it. Um, but it is, which is a, a real bonus. So it's basically a caffeine clone that then the developer did a whole lot more to. So uh, definitely check it out. We've got a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, this was one first based on the number of listeners that recommended it. I knew it was a winner. And then as soon as I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, this is this has now replaced caffeine in my life. Um, Tim wrote in, I, I talked about how I use the Apple script menu and um, I um, I have not used fast scripts. And uh, Tim wrote in saying, hey, fast scripts from Red Setter Sweater Software uh, is better than the Apple script menu. Fast scripts can be triggered using a hotkey, which uh, I can't do with my Apple script menu. And, and he uh, can assign shortcut keys. For example, in, in OmniFocus, he has the command space bar configured up to invoke Kirk Clifton's complete and await reply script. Very smart idea. Uh, he says it's a free version with limited to 10 keyboard shortcuts. Full version is $10. Uh, since the show, I have now purchased Red Sweater's Fast Scripts, and I am now a Fast Scripts user instead of the Mac uh, Apple Script menu. So uh, now you guys cost me money. You're welcome. Yes. Well, another one that has cost me money money is um, alternatives to display mode, because you picked display mode uh, for one of your menu bar picks. Yeah. But a lot of people wrote in to tell us that this hasn't been updated in several years, and there are actually better options. TJ wrote in to tell us about two options. Um, one is Display Menu, which is free in the Mac App Store that has a $2 in-app purchase to unlock some additional features. Or another one is Resolutionator, which 
if you don't buy it for the name alone, shame on you, by Minitrix, uh, which is $3 and has a free trial. And Minitrix makes great um, great software like Moom and many others. So that's the one that I ended up picking up just because I love supporting that company. Um, but uh, both great alternatives and appear to be actively developed. Yeah, I've, I've switched to Minitrix as well. I'm using Resolutionator. Thanks, TJ. Um, Curtis wrote in about monitoring bandwidth. He says, I don't have a cable TV service. Uh, so he gets most of his TV movie content through streaming and his internet provider instituted a 300 gigabyte per month bandwidth cap on the home service about a year ago. So he has to monitor his usage and, uh, he doesn't want to go over the limit. Uh, he says peak hour three is perfect app for that. He says it's in the menu bar. It presents current usage in numeric and graphical formats and upload versus download bandwidth for the current month and total bandwidth usage for the current month. So if you have bandwidth limitations, it sounds like you want to look at peak hour to keep a track of things. Yeah. And I was not aware that um, a, a tool on your Mac could monitor bandwidth usage from other devices. Like for example, I do all of my Netflix streaming from my Apple TV. So I wasn't really sure how this was going to work. But it kind of says in the description that it does, um, and there's a free trial, so you can try it before you buy it and and see if it works for you and if it really does do what it claims. And if it does, it may be something that I look at. I, I've got a bandwidth cap here. I think mine's 500 gigabytes through Cox, and I've run over it a couple of times. And thankfully, they don't charge us yet. They just send us a little nasty gram, but I'm kind of waiting for that day to come. And if it does, I may have to do something like this or pay them a little more money. But the way my kids watch Netflix and YouTube, I am, I am probably on the chopping block for that. I mean, they must, I don't even know how much bandwidth goes through our house every month. (laughs) I'm sure it's a lot. Anybody who has kids now, it seems like they don't care about TV. They just don't. I I don't know what's going to happen to the TV industry in like 10 years because my kids watch YouTube and they watch Netflix shows and my wife and I watch the TV. Yeah, and especially during the summer months, uh, when a lot of TV shows are in reruns and all, it's that's that's all I watch is streaming content. Yeah. I, I've got I've got my ne- I just went through and got my next Netflix queued all sorted out after I finished this uh, LLM program, and I am looking forward to being a couch potato for a little while and just binge watching everything. Anything uh, Anything you're particularly excited about? Um, I am, I've got house of cards on my list. Oh, that, that makes um, me melancholy. I can't watch that. It makes me, well, I, it, it freaked me out a little bit and, um, but it is a little kind of addictive yeah. and I've got, um, I, w- I want to see fuller house just from a nostalgia standpoint, sure. but I'm afraid it might be bad. Yeah, it so, probably will be. <laughs> we'll see. Um, what I'm really, really looking forward to, and I'm not sure when it comes out is the new Gilmore girls. There's a, a short run series of Gilmore girls that is coming. So I'm not sure when that comes out. But I, I'm are you, are you an Amazon Prime uh, listener? I am an, yeah, I'm an Amazon Prime member. I, I would recommend trying Mozart in the Jungle. And um, okay. my, my wife and I have discovered that that's been the show we've really enjoyed watching. We, we're, we're dieting ourselves. We only watch one or two a week because there aren't very many of them, but we're really enjoying it. Yeah. And I'm almost completely caught up on Sherlock. I only have one what? left. And that's the... That's the um, <laughs> The bride one, the new one that just came out a couple of months ago. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I figured you would be caught up on that. I'm I'm offended. <laughs> I went and saw the bride one in the theater. They had like a one night showing. It was fun. Okay. Um, well, 
uh, we've got more feedback and we've got some good audio comments too. You want to take a quick sponsor break and, uh, and come back? Yeah, let's do that. I want to thank our next sponsor for this episode, and that is Fujitsu and their ScanSnap line of products. As you know, I'm a longtime fan of the ScanSnap products and software. In fact, I've got the iX500 sitting right here on my desk. I love the iX500 because it is the Mac daddy of all Fujitsu scanners. It is a full duplex scanner, and what that means is it will scan both sides of the page simultaneously, which means you're really going to rip through your paper. It will scan 25 pages per minute using their USB 3.0 interface, and it has a 50-sheet paper feed which means you can stack up your documents and really rip through them. You can scan directly to your Mac, to your PC, or to your mobile devices and bypass the computer altogether. It will scan PDF or JPEGs directly to iOS, Android Mobile, or to your Mac or PC, and they have an advanced paper feeding system. But it will detect when a paper gets in there kind of de-skewed and it will straighten it out. And it will also help minimize uh, jams using their separation roller technology. You've got a ton of scanning options using their amazing Fujitsu software. So you can scan directly to any of their amazing cloud services like Dropbox, Evernote, Google Doc. You can also set up multiple profiles so you can scan single pages. You can set it up for batch scans and more. You can even scan multiple small documents together at the same time, or you can scan large documents that are larger than legal size and their software will stitch them together automatically. They even include software to scan and organize business cards and receipts. But if the iX500 is too much power for you, or if you're looking for something a little more mobile and all ago, they have a whole lineup of scanners. They've got the S1300i, which is smaller, it's portable, it will scan 12 pages per minute. And this is kind of a scanner that you can stick in your briefcase or stick in a desk drawer, and you can easily manage the scanner on the go. It can be USB powered. It's great if you don't have as much to scan, but if you want the ultimate in portability, check out the iX500. This is almost like a magic wand. It will scan a single page at 300 DPI in 5.2 seconds, and it's small enough that it'll fit in your glove box, briefcase, or backpack, and weighs only 14 ounces. It's USB powered, and will scan wirelessly to a Mac, PC, iOS, Android, and Kindle Fire mobile devices, which means you don't even have to take your computer with you. It has a rechargeable battery that will scan up to 260 pages on the go. So check out the entire line of Fujitsu products at this special URL. It's budurl.me slash SSMPU. Note that's a new site, budurl.me slash SSMPU. And thanks to Fujitsu for their longtime support of the show. Okay, so Sean sent in an audio comment um, about Kanban. Is that how we say it? Kanban? Kanban? Uh, well, Sean, tell us. Let's All find right. out. Hi, Katie and David. My name is Sean Henning. On a recent podcast, you discussed productivity systems. One system your listeners might be interested in is called Personal Kanban. It uses a Kanban board, which is most often a three-column task board, with the columns To Do, Doing, and Done. On the doing column, you enforce a work in progress or WIP limit, usually of three to five items, to ensure that you're not doing too many things at once so you don't become overwhelmed. There's a website and book written by Jim Benson and Tony Ann Maria Berry. You can find out more with a quick web search. For software, I use a tool called Kanbanery, K-A-N-B-A-N-E-R-Y. I looked at a number of task tracking tools and settled on Kanbanery, which is both a website and iOS app, mostly because it worked well with the iOS screen reader and OSX screen reader voiceover. At the time, I had recently lost my vision and 
found that a number of tools I was used to using were not accessible and my information was lost to me because I couldn't get to it anymore. Thank you for your podcast, and I hope this is helpful. Yeah, wouldn't that be terrible? I mean, first you have to deal with losing your vision, and then, like, your data is not, you can't access it. That's that's not fun. Well, uh, One of our guests that we had on a workflow show um, was using the Kanban system, and I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it um, Morgan? Um, no, I don't remember who it was. I don't remember either. 320 shows. It gets a little fuzzy sometimes. It, it does. I always had seen it used as a team uh, management tool, like uh, for project management for teams. I, I never really thought about it as an individual tool, but you know, I, you know, whatever works. I mean, everybody's, I think all of us are wired a little differently and you got to find the system that, that works for you. And I don't think there is just one, but there's one to try out Kanban and Kanbanery.com is the app site. Um, Mitch wrote in about writing with the iPad Pro and Katie's setup. Hello, Mac Power users. This is Mitch Wagner, a few hundred feet east of San Diego. I'm following up on your iPad show with Mike Hurley, which was terrific, as are all your programs. I just want to pick on one point you made. Um, you were saying, or Mike was saying, rather, that um, if he was a writer, you know, he would think the iPad Pro is great because he could just do all his writing in that. Well, you know, I am a writer, and I write all day, and I, I can't really see using an iPad Pro as my main machine, at least not this year's iterations. I mean, I keep uh, a Ulysses window open when I'm writing, and I have um, my source material in another window that I'm constantly referring to, and then I have another display that shows my email and IM so I can keep an eye on if anything is coming in there. So that's just too many windows and too much screen real estate I need to rely exclusively on the iPad Pro, at least for now. Maybe in a couple of years it'll be different. But that's not why I am sending in this message. I want to ask something uh, of Katie. You've talked a couple of times about how you use a 13-inch MacBook Air and also a very big external display. Yours is 24 inches on your desk. And that's the way I work too. But I always feel like I'm not getting as much out of that MacBook Air as I could be. I just have this... uh, email window and IM window just sitting there all lonely there. And I'm wondering what your setup is, and in particular, how you arrange your Macs, your your equipment on your desk. Maybe if you could share a photo, that would be helpful. Do you use a stand or a prop or something for the MacBook Air? Anyway, like I said, it's Mitch Wagner, a few hundred feet east of San Diego. You can find me on the web, on my blog at MitchWagner.com, and also on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Google Plus at Mitch Wagner. Bye-bye. Keep up the great work. So, Katie, how do you set up your, your devices? Well, I wanted, I wanted you to respond to the writing on the iPad first. Well, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, it's interesting. He's close because if he's using Ulysses to do his writing and Ulysses has an excellent iPad application, I was just working in Ulysses this morning. Um, the uh, I'm doing a project, a, a legal project for somebody where I'm writing a, a contract in Ulysses, and I had a bunch of PDFs from the uh, the you know that we were using as sources for some of the stuff I was writing so I had split screen on the big iPad Pro and I had Ulysses on the left side and my PDFs on the right side and I was getting by just swimmingly so I think you're you're getting close Mitch to where the point you can uh to me a lot of this is about you know where you're comfortable I mean a lot of us have been writing and working on Macs for so long and we have things like keyboard maestro where we're killing it 
And we don't want to have to bother with, you know, figuring out a new way to, you know, to, to build the widget because iOS is different. Um, I'm such a nerd that I actually really get a lot of joy out of that. Like see running into the problem saying, okay, how do I, how can I get around this on iOS and, and researching it and figuring it out. And that's, that's my own little, you know, problem, I guess. Uh, but if you're a writer and you just, you know, you want to get moving with your books and you don't want it to stop and figure out how to do things differently every time, uh, you're probably not there yet. I would give it a little bit more time. Let the, those of us at the sharp end of the stick, try and figure that out for you before you make the move. But I don't think you're that far away. If you're using Ulysses in one research window, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and then ask for my desk. Uh, I was trying to see if I had a picture and if not, I'll, I'll try to get one and post one. I um I, I am waiting for Apple to release a, a, a high definition display. But basically what I have is I have a 24 inch cinema display that is centered in the middle of my desk. Um, and then I sit directly in front of that. And then I have off to the side and mine is off to the right side. I have my 13 inch MacBook Air on a riser. And the riser that I use is an old one. It's called an iCurve. Um, I believe Belkin made it or Griffin, Griffin made it probably. And then so you could get really anything, but it's a riser that brings it up to a better eye level. So the the keyboard and the trackpad on that MacBook Air are really not usable, but it's just to bring the monitor to a more usable level. But that brings the, the computer up off my desk, which means I can slide some other things under there and use the space under that MacBook Air. So right now I've got like, uh, I used to have some hard drives. I've got the Belkin Thunderbolt uh, hub under there. But I had a Mac Power user um, listen in, uh, listener write in and said that they use a, a riser and I think it was one that was made by Rain Designs that has a solid bottom so that they can take like some double-sided tape or some industrial strength Velcro and they can actually Velcro things up underneath that riser, um, like a dock or a small hard drive or a super drive or things like that. And I thought that was a really clever idea. So that's something that I, although this iCurve is, has worked for me for, you know, probably more than 10 years, uh, that's that's another idea of something to think about in the future. And so because the um, the keyboard and the trackpad on my Mac aren't really accessible when it's in riser mode, um, I do have an external keyboard and mouse is, is what I use. And I think I've talked about it before, but the one that I use is the Logitech, and I have to flip it over to get the model number, uh, K750, which has a very similar in tactile feel uh, to the Apple Magic Keyboard, but it has an extended keyboard, which means it has the numpad on the side. Uh, which is something that I have to have. And um, it also plugs in through the uh, the Logitech. Um, it's via USB, but it's their little micro adapter, which I also link up with my Performance MX mouse. So with that little mini dongle, I can plug multiple things in. And I really like that keyboard. It also um, has a, a solar strip on the top, which means I never have to worry about it being dead. I don't have to fumble with batteries. Although we talked about, I think it was um, Satachi, who just recently introduced a Bluetooth version that looks very similar to this. That's kind of a Bluetooth knockoff of the Apple keyboard that also has an extended version. So that might be something that I look at. Yeah. Um, and then I've got other stuff, like I've got a scan snap and all, but I think that kind of answers the question. Yeah. I got, I have a collection of dolls now on my desk. I have no toys on my desk. Yeah. I, I keep a very, very, very clean desk. Yeah. Uh, no dolls, no lightsabers. And my wife walked in and she said, well, so you have dolls now? <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> anyway, um, 
I think, you know, Apple, a bit of news on Mac Power Users, we don't do this too often. They've they released a new uh, MacBook, you know, uh, update to the MacBook line, which is a, an iteration. Got a little faster, but didn't really change much. And they did not release new MacBook Pros. And everybody's like, where's the new MacBook Pros? You know, you thought that would be out by now. And there's a lot of speculation out there that the new MacBook Pro is going to have some significant design change and be able to drive an external high-definition monitor like I have on my iMac. And uh, my guess would be, if Apple makes good on that, that that would be a real attractive thing to you. I, and I plan on buying that. Uh, that's going to be my graduation present to myself. And if they release an external high-def monitor, I think that I will also buy it at the same time. Because there's some... I, I don't think I'm going to be able to buy a MacBook with a high-definition retina display and then sit here and use a non-high definition monitor because everything you've told me is that that yeah. that retina display will ruin me. It will. I mean, I I have I'm another friend that went and looked at one in the store and bought one. I, you just yeah. can't just stay away from it if you don't not willing to buy one. It's right. so much nicer. And then now you, the question is, do you buy the Apple display? And I think a lot of that comes down to price. I I love my Apple Cinema display. It's it's just gorgeous sitting here on the desk. It looks good, but you do pay a real premium for the Apple display when you could probably buy one that's fairly comparable in terms of specs for a significantly lower price. And and if I were in your shoes, if I were going into an office every day, I would not be willing to go just iMac and iPad. I would need a Mac at the office. So yeah. I, I think that's why the laptop makes so much sense. I do want to check in with you, though, on what's going on with that iPad that you bought, because, you know, now I think you're, uh, you know, you've been with it a while and you weren't exactly excited at the beginning, but you know, you really liked your mini. I was lukewarm on it. Um, yeah. And so you're talking about the 7.9 inch iPad pro. Yeah. Actually talking 9.7. Should we Nine, do our last, 9.7 inch. you want to do our last sponsor and then we can go back to that. Uh, I believe we have done our last sponsor. Oh, so I, I think, we've, I think we've got a clear road here. All right. Well, to let's talk all about it. Let's, so. let's hear it. Where, where are you with your iPad pro now, Katie Floyd? Um, I, I am enjoying it. I will tell you that there are days that I still long for my mini and I, I do miss the mini, but the 9.7 inch iPad pro is a good compromise. And I am, I'm starting to enjoy some of the pro features of the, the iPad pro. I, I probably could have gotten away with the 9.7 inch iPad air because I will tell you in all, honestly, I'm not really using the pencil much. I, I have one, but it, it's kind of a novelty at, at this point. I'm enjoying the, the louder speakers, but what I'm enjoying more than anything is is really split screen. And although you could do split screen on the mini, uh, it was very difficult to do um, in, in a real practical way because the, the screens that you were splitting were so small. And so whereas on your, your monstrosity of an iPad Pro, when you split the screens, you basically have two 9.7 inch iPad screens. When I split my screen, I basically have two iPad mini screens. Yeah. Which might be a little small for you, but is fine for me. So I find myself in a position where I'm doing that, f not all the time, but often enough that it's making a difference. Um, you know, I, I took this into Chambers, which, you know, basically a judge's office the other day for a conference that we were having. And um, I was able to take notes and um, pull up information at the same time, which was great. So what apps did you use to take notes in? I just did it in ByWord. Okay. Um, you know, I was just taking quick type notes and um, was was pulling up documents in, in PDF pen. And so I've done that on a couple of occasions. I've done things where I've been 
looking at emails and then pulling up things that I've been referencing on web pages. Um, obviously, the document picker, and this is, I mean, there are lots of OS 9, uh, iOS 9 issues that have to get better. And I think we're going to see some improvements um, in, in iOS 10 or whatever they choose to call it uh, at WWDC. But I, I'm finding it a lot more productive. And another example is we talked about yesterday as we were prepping, as I was prepping for this live show, um, I haven't done a ton of Mac Power users feedback the last uh, week or so because I've been uh, dealing with finals and some other family stuff that's been going on. And I had developed a backlog of probably over 75 emails, which is a lot longer than I let it. And I was sitting in the back of a courtroom for about three hours yesterday and didn't have much to do. I was just kind of on standby waiting. And I said, well, you know, this is a good time to do it because this 9.7 inch iPad fits in my purse, uh, barely, but it does. Um, I was able to pull it out and I was able to power through those emails. I used dispatch. I was able to forward the emails uh, into Evernote and respond and use text expander and do all of those things um, and, and was able to do that. And it was could I have done it on the iPad mini? Probably, but I was typing on the keyboard and in that type of situation, um, I wouldn't have been able to take an external keyboard. So I was just typing on the glass because I was sitting kind of in a, in a on a bench in the back. Um, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it very efficiently at all on an iPad mini. And I was able to do it fairly efficiently on the 9.7 inch iPad. So, so are you typing in landscape or portrait? Landscape. Yeah, I, I find on this on the the nine point seven portrait typing with thumbs is actually quite fast for me. If you use the word suggestions, uh, yeah, I haven't really done that. Now, the question that I had for you that we talked a little bit about pre-show, and I figured it's a, a good as time as any to bring it up this show is, I I find myself somewhat considering uh, the keyboard cover because in that situation that I was in yesterday, it would have been probably even faster typing with an external keyboard. But, um, you know, I was in a, I find myself in situations when I'm in there, when I'm on a situation where I'm typing on the glass, I'm probably not sitting at a desk. Yeah. And so how does the keyboard cover work if you're like typing in your lap? Is it stable enough to use for lap typing or is it just going to fold back over on itself and collapse? Yeah. With the keyboard with the larger, the 13 inch iPad pro is fine. I use it on my lap all the time. I mean, almost probably daily. I don't have a keyboard cover for the smaller iPad Pro, the 9.7. I've typed on one in the store, and they actually are pretty good typing. I mean, it's not terrible. Um, I think the question would be the width, you know, the width of it, because the the wider base of the 13-inch iPad Pro makes it easier to put it on your lap. I guess I'd have to keep my legs really kind of tight together. You're, You're smaller than I am, so it probably would be fine for you. I would recommend going in the store and playing with one a little bit. And, you know, they've got, was it the 14 day return policy or whatever? Just maybe yeah. just try it. And and you don't have any other cover on your iPad. If you have the nine, if you have the keyboard cover, you just keep the back open, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't, I just put that one on it. And then when I don't want to use the keyboard, I take it off. And that's when I'm using my, you know, my expensive dragon, you know, technology but the uh i i've i've taken some um heat in the emails and on the show about why the the smart keyboard cover isn't good enough and you should get a real bluetooth keyboard and everything but um i don't think the bulk is too bad i mean it doesn't bother me i have a little sleeve i put it in when i throw it in my bag and um i just 
I just want the ability to type. And, and honestly, I really like the ability to talk as well as type. And, and so with the basic keyboard and the dragon subscription, I am good. I'm good. So, um, I guess I'm happy with the 9.7 inch. It's not too big. It's certainly bigger than the mini, but it's not too big. It's not so big that I'm not using it. I'm still using it in bed. I'm still using it on the couch. It's still small enough. I did have to get a bigger purse. I did buy a bigger purse, um, but it's still small enough that I can fit in that larger purse. And um, and there you go. We got some real time follow up in the uh, show in the uh, in the chat. Um, uh, several listeners wrote and say the nine point seven is stable with the keyboard, but you have to keep your legs together. So, well, that's always good advice. Yeah, the um, um, I and I I, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I've thrown you off. I, he did. I just, I'm like, what? <laughs> I, uh, I really like the, the keyboard. I, I just think it's, I, I don't know. I, th- I feel like Apple has got to a point with the iPad that has suddenly made it super interesting to me. And I think I'm not alone. So um, it's going to be fun seeing how all this stuff develops. Uh, one point you made that we kind of glossed over and, and I would like to put my endorsement on is your use of dispatch. I have been going through and using all of the big iPad um, email applications and they've all got some really great things. There's si- simply not one that solves all the problems in my opinion. But, but if you want a, if you're an Apple mail user and you want an additional app, for certain functions that aren't in Apple mail, I think dispatch is an, is a really good solution for that because it just has, um, you know, a lot of the tools that Apple mail doesn't have, and it works in conjunction with Apple mail really nicely. In fact, in my doc right now, I have Apple mail and dispatch my usual workflows. I just use Apple mail, but occasionally I get something where I want to save it as a PDF or I want to stick it into Evernote and dispatch is really good for that. Another thing that dispatch is really good for, like when you're answering Mac power users email, or if you've got a lot of email to get through is they've got a function where when you hit reply, it'll say, you know, hi, Katie, it'll insert the name from the, um, from the incoming email. So it allows you to get the email started. And if you're a dictator, that's great. Cause a lot of times na- names are where dictation can get hung up. And, uh, so it's just, I just feel like dispatch is, is really doing a good job, especially as a complimentary app to Apple mail. Is that how you use it, or do you just use Dispatch straight up? Oh, no. Well, what I was going to tell you is that um, I, I use Dispatch totally as a complimentary app to mail, uh, and, and I don't use it very often at all. Uh, well, I mean, I, I use it like a couple of times a month, uh, primarily when I'm trying to power through feedback or something like that. It's kind of like a Swiss Army knife tool. I, I use it when I need it, but I, I don't need it that often. Yeah, so and- I just keep it like in the utilities folder. And one of the nice things about it for Sanebox users is it doesn't create a bunch of folders. Some of the, some of the apps, the third-party apps, actually do their own kind of deferred email by creating a bunch of extra email folders in your um, in your IMAP accounts, which makes me a little crazy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a pick. I guess well, okay. can we call that your pick? That yeah, you, that's my pick. Okay. That's my pick. I have a pick. I I talked and bemoaned on the show, you know, as I'm getting better at using the iPad and how I want to get better at remotes. Uh, I had several listeners send in some suggestions. Um, I bought a Satichi remote for my iPad a couple of years ago, and it's actually got better. Um, the uh, But I bought another one, so now I have two. I'm going to write them up in Max Sparky and hopefully get them up by the time this show publishes, but if not, it'll be shortly after. 
but I bought a new one. It's the Satichi aluminum, aluminum wireless presenter pointer control. And I really like it. It's very simple. It's a cylinder, you know, like just a, a tube and it only has three buttons on it. It's got a laser and it's got a forward and backward button, which for a, pres- have the laser. For a presentation is it's really good that you can't make mistakes. You know, you just go forward or backward for keynote remotes. It's really great. It syncs via Bluetooth to the iPad. So when you um, are moving through your 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 uh, slides, you can just hit the button and, and keep going. It's not very big in your hand. Um, a couple things I don't like about it. It charges via um, by USB mini cable. It's not hold batteries, you know, because I, I like the idea of remotes that hold batteries because uh, that way I know if I get to the event and it's not working, I can always put another battery in it immediately. I don't have to stop to charge it. Um, it uses a red laser instead of a green laser. Green lasers, I think, are more visible and better. I mean, there's, so there's a couple things I don't like about it, but in general, the design. Well, is, you like green lasers because of the green lightsaber. The red lightsaber is the bad Yeah, I, I mean, I am not a Sith. And so that does bother me a little bit. I'm glad you admitted that. Uh, you, you know, it's funny, really side story. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, wanted me to buy him a lightsaber at Disneyland because there's a couple that they only sell at Disneyland. And this guy's, you know, he's in it. He's serious. So I had to buy him a Darth Vader lightsaber and, and, and the way they sell them, it's just out. So I'm walking through Disneyland with this red lightsaber and my wife says to me, it's really bugging you, isn't it? (laughs) And it actually was, (laughs) I I don't carry red lightsabers. What is that about? But anyway, uh, so Satichi's new aluminum wireless presenter pointer control is great and it fits in your bag. It's got a little pouch that you can put it in. And it pairs seamlessly with the iPad. I'm going to be speaking at the release notes conference this year, which I'm kind of excited about. And I'm seriously considering just just leaving the MacBook at home and just doing the whole thing on the iPad. Well, you know, we're probably going to have to do a Mac power users from there. So you're going to figure out the podcasting thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's, I'm only there for a few days, so that may not necessarily overlap. Now, WWDC, on the other hand, is um, something where we're going to be doing a Mac power users from and. I've already accepted that in order to get the show done, I'll have to bring the laptop. But uh, the uh, I, I don't want to do that thing. I mean, some podcasters are doing this thing now where they use their phone and they have a Skype app and two sets of headphones and this crazy nonsense. I, I'll just bring the Mac if we have to do a show. Because <laughs> I know that would also stress you out a lot. No, it's not going to stress me out. You just got to figure it out. Yeah, it would stress me out. Okay, so it would stress me out. <laughs> anyway, so gang, there's some really good remotes out there if you want to start running keynote presentations off of your iPad. All right, and there we are. Another Mac Power Users Live in the can. Yeah, yeah. So much great feedback this month. Thanks, everybody. Please keep it coming. And don't forget, future Mac Power Users Live starting in June are going to be the first Monday of the month, 6 p.m., Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. We think it's 10 p.m. Universal Time, UTC, which apparently is midnight in Germany. Sorry about that. And 5 a.m. in Thailand. And we're sorry about that, too. And 5 a.m. in Thailand. You know, can't can't work for everybody. Um, but thanks to our sponsors, uh, Smile, Automatic, Drobo, and Fujitsu for their support of the show. And thanks to all of you who have become members of Relay FM and have chosen to sponsor uh, Mac Power Users or all the great shows on the network. Uh, it's It's really nice. Uh, getting that every month and, and knowing that you you all are out there and, and hope that you're benefiting from that. Uh, and we will see you all. We'll see you all next week. And we hope to see you next month at MPU Live.